called the Bridge Organization, and that we bridge the needs that exist with child welfare specialists at DCFS, the Department of Children and Family Services, and the churches that have the resources to be able to meet those needs. And one of the things that we do at the family table is educate churches about the biblical basis for how and why we step into some of those places. And so that's really what we're going to be doing here this morning. Um, I've been married to my wife, Amy, for 20 years. This is our, thank you, right? There's, that's no small thing. This is our fourth nonprofit that we've started in those 20 years. It's just kind of the way that God has wired us. We have four children of our own. I have a 16-year-old, a 15-year-old, a 13-year-old, and then an 8-year-old little girl, three boys and a little girl. So we are in that stage of parenting where it seems like everything we work so hard to teach our kids has gone out the window. And if they don't turn out to be serial killers, I'm going to consider that a win for the kingdom at this point because it's rough. It's rough. So that's the stage where we are at right now, stepping into this. Another way that this is really serendipitous this morning is November 10th is what's known as Orphan Sunday or Stand Sunday. Many churches around the country are celebrating the call for churches to stand on behalf of vulnerable and abused and neglected children and considering how they might get involved with that because we are a people that are called to defend the fatherless and to protect the weak and to walk alongside those who are hurting and broken. Um, through what is known as Orphan Sunday or Stand Sunday, we are not only learning about God's heart for the spiritual and physical orphan, but in hopes that that would echo in our lives. Because you can't read the Bible very far in either direction, Old Testament or New Testament, and not come across this regularly. And it's interesting because most churches have a media team and a greeter team and a children's ministry in order to make it comfortable for people to come and hear the gospel, all of which are good, but none of which have a scriptural basis for. It's just a good idea. And yet, there are dozens upon dozens of passages in scripture that call God's people to be the ones to stand on behalf of vulnerable people in society, the marginalized and the weak and the poor, over and over and over again. And so we are going to be talking about that because that's who we were before he found us. And so it seems reasonable that the people who have experienced being a spiritual orphan adopted into God's family would be the ones to be able to step out in that field. Um, so we're going to be in two passages of scripture today. The first is Ezekiel chapter 16, where the prophet Ezekiel gives us a picture of adoption. And then we're going to be in James 1.27 in the New Testament, which shows us a description of how God's people can walk towards that. So a picture of the gospel, a very graphic word picture, and then a description of how that's actually lived out. What I want to start by saying, though, is that this is not rallying for a cause or social compassion in some way. This is what the Bible calls discipleship. This is how God's people align themselves with both the heart and mind of God and walk towards the things that he is passionate about. And so we're aligning ourselves by caring for Jesus's little brothers and sisters who, for whatever reason, abuse, neglect, or any number of reasons, do not have the protection of a safe and loving family to be able to call their own and are desperately in need of that. And our maturity in Jesus as disciples 
moves us from first being recipients of God's great love for us towards extending that love for other people that have not yet known that. And we don't use the terms orphan and widow in America very much. Those are archaic biblical terms that we don't use. We call them foster children and single moms, typically. That's who the orphans and widows are in our society. And the picture that Ezekiel is going to paint seems pretty drastic. But I assure you, this is a reality right now, this morning, in our city. And I am convinced the only difference between people who are stepping towards those needs and those who are not are simply those who have been exposed to them. So, for instance, the reason why I'm here this morning is because Pastor Tim's son is going to meet with the birth mother. And so he is going to introduce his son to that birth mother. And the reason why he has that child in his house is because he got a call saying, there is a child that's going to be aborted unless someone is able to take them in. And when you're faced with that situation, the question of whether or not should you step in is a little bit easier. When you know that physically there is a child that will die, and you look around your, your life and you think, we, we don't have anything together, but we do have room and an availability in our home, why would we not? And as you are aware of how desperate the needs are that exist, people tend to then step into those once they know. Um, in the New Testament, Luke is the gospel author that most often ties our vertical relationship with God and our discipleship with our horizontal relationship with our neighbors. And so he calls attention in a couple different ways to that over and over through his gospel. So in Luke chapter 10, a religious leader comes to Jesus to ask him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus turns that back on him and says, what's the law? How do you read it? And he says, well, the law says, and he sums up the Ten Commandments nicely, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you got it. Go and do that and you'll be fine. And then Jesus tells a story to illustrate that eternal life. But the story he chooses to tell is the parable of the Good Samaritan, which seems like a social justice kind of story, and yet he's tying that into the discipleship. The same thing happens earlier when John the Baptist is imprisoned, and he sends his disciples to Jesus to ask, are you the one we were waiting for, or should we look for another? And Jesus says, you go back to John and you tell him what your eyes have seen and what your ears have heard. The deaf hear, the lame walk, the gospel is being preached to the poor, and blessed is he who does not fall away on account of me. Jesus is always tying together our love from God and for God with our love for our neighbor as ourselves. And so I want to suggest that caring for some of the most vulnerable people in society is one of the means that God uses to connect our minds, our hearts, and our bodies. Our minds, what we know to be true about who God is, the image of the invisible God expressed through Jesus. Our hearts and how we feel towards what God himself cares about and those who he has a particular concern for. And our bodies and how we actually move into action as a result. That is from Matthew 22, the greatest commandment, loving the Lord your God and loving your neighbor as yourself. Both of those go together. 
adoption is first a theological reality. Adoption is gospel because our adoption by God the Father through the finished work of Jesus Christ is what gives us identity. It's what tells us who we are, that we are actually beloved, that we belong, that we are desired. Which sounds so spiritual until you encounter people that genuinely no one wants. And that's the sad reality that exists of many people in, in my field of work that I come across every day. It's not just hyperbole that no one likes me or cares about me. Genuinely, they are forgotten and unwanted. And so to hear God, the Father of the universe, saying, you're mine, and I went to great lengths for you to belong in my family, is incredible good news. But adoption is also mission because that's what aligns us with what God does as a result of who he is, but they must be tied together. Because when you have adoption as gospel without mission, it's a big theological concept that exists in metaphors and ideas and in theology books. We systematize it. But when you have it as mission without a theological basis, then all you have are just good works that we're doing that are not underpinned by any kind of deeper understanding of who God is and how he moves towards the broken and towards the powerless. So those always go together. Now, Ezekiel 16. In the Old Testament, the prophets are known for vivid word pictures, as well as just straight-up descriptions of things that are going on. So you have Micah saying very plainly, do justice, walk humbly with your God and love mercy. You have Isaiah in 117 making it very clear, you are to defend the cause of the poor and the fatherless. These are um, commands that the prophets are simply saying, this is what it looks like for God's people. Ezekiel takes a very different route. And it's not that there's no commands in Ezekiel, but God has him both act out and describe these pretty vivid word pictures, which is what he's doing here in Ezekiel 16. He's using a story as a means of communicating the spiritual reality of where Israel is. So in context, you have Ezekiel as one of the latter prophets that are inviting God's people to repent both during and after the exile to see who God is and what he's doing. And he tells them a story about what their birth and maturation and then subsequent idolatry and the consequences for it are. And the reason he does that is because stories get our attention in a way like commands can never do. So you recall David, after his adultery and murder, is confronted by the prophet Nathan, who tells him a story. There's no command in there. He simply tells him a story about a rich man who is stealing a poor man's one little lamb. And David starts to become angry as he's listening to that story because he wrongly identifies himself as the good guy in the story. And then as Nathan confronts him and says, that's who you are. You are that man. David is convicted and he realizes what he has actually done himself. I, Ezekiel is using that by giving us a very graphic and very vivid depiction of Israel's circumstances before God found her. 
So look at this in uh, Ezekiel 16, verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem. Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother was a Hittite. So he starts out by saying, you who think you can claim Abraham as your father, let's remember Abraham was also an idol-worshiping pagan when God first came to him. And God himself first extended that mercy to Abraham, your father. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your umbilical cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were despised, abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and I saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. And I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. And when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. He pictures them as this newborn infant whose parents did not give her any love or affection. She was unwanted and she was thrown into an open field left to die. No one desired you. This, by the way, has echoes of Deuteronomy chapter 5. I didn't, or Deuteronomy chapter 4. I didn't choose you because you were the greatest of all nations, but because you were the least of all nations. I chose you because you needed me to. And he says, this is the circumstances around your birth. Your umbilical cord was not cut. No one cared enough to even wipe the blood off you. And then you were thrown into an open field and you were left to die. And you would have if I had not come along and saw you kicking in your blood. That's where our story starts as well with Jesus. Regardless of what your physical story and family of origin and birth story were like, the gospel tells us that that was our spiritual reality before God. No matter how we first came to God, before him, we were alone and we were abandoned and we were unwanted and we were left to our own desires. But God, when he saw us lying there, chose us first. And by his grace and by his mercy, he's the one that made a way for us to be in his family. And then it says that he comes along and he breathes life into her and he helped her thrive. What stands out to me, though, is that he comes back as she is a mature young woman. It says that her breasts had formed and her hair was growing, but she was naked. And what that's a picture of is that she is now vulnerable to being taken advantage of by other people. And he says, when I saw your vulnerability, I took off my clothes and I covered your nakedness. I brought you into my home so you would not be left out there alone and vulnerable to all of the elements and to anybody that would want to take advantage. And then it says, I made a covenant with you. I entered into this marriage covenant with you by promising you 
that I would be both a husband and a father to you. The rest, if that's graphic, the rest of the passage is even more so as it describes her idolatry and her prostitution with all of the surrounding nations because she became prideful in all of her beauty there. The application there, though, is that there's a couple of them. One is that the plight of the orphan is a physical picture of our spiritual reality. We, too, were abused by Satan. We were unloved and unwanted. We were lost. We were alone until God stepped into our lives. Based on what your personal story is like, you might resonate with that more than others. I came to Jesus at 22 years old out of a life of violence and drugs and had a rapid, immediate encounter with God that left me changed. My wife was a good church kid who didn't know Jesus her whole life. And so her encounter with Jesus was a little bit subtler as she realized this God who she'd heard about her whole life actually did adopt her into his family and that she was trying to run from God by doing good works the same way I was running from God by doing evil things. Both of us were running from God. Both of us were in need of adoption. One of us just looked like a good kid and one of us looked like a bad kid. But the reality was still the same. So this is exactly where our story starts as well. That is the parallel to the crisis in our city that exists. So I'm guessing T.O. is Ventura County? Okay. So Los Angeles County has the largest child welfare crisis in the entire nation, in all of America. We have about 35,000 children in the foster care system waiting for a home. There are, as of right now, 9,000 DCFS workers employed. 4,000 of those are caseworkers who are already overloaded trying to care for the needs of that. To give you some perspective, Santa Barbara and Ventura counties combined have about 1,200 kids in their system. LA is 35,000. It is a crisis that is unprecedented. And I am super thankful for the work of the government to step in on behalf and to create some of these incredible programs. But the people of God understand that while the government can go so far, they don't make good parents. Only a family can do that. Only God's people can actually be that family to step in and to help those needs. And every caseworker that I've come across has been no one gets into this work because they plan on getting rich out of it. They get into this work because they want to step in and see good happen, and yet their hands are tied behind their back in many cases. They're overworked. Their cases are overloaded. There's just not enough time or people to go around and to help with that. To say that this disadvantages the future of our city is an understatement. Um, once a child enters the foster care system, 50% of them will never graduate high school. For those that do graduate high school, only 3% will ever graduate college. 75% of children who enter the foster care system will be picked off by child sex trafficking or human trafficking. 75%. There's a whole sector in the foster care system that's known as CSEC, C-S-E-C, Commercially Sexually Exploited Children. It is a huge systemic problem within that. 
Another 75% will be pregnant by the time they turn 21 with at least one child, which then perpetuates the system of becoming a single mother and then doing the same thing that they saw happen as well. Um, this is a huge problem. What I love about Ezekiel, though, is he uses a phrase that appears 43 times in the Bible. He uses it in the first person, but whenever you see the two words, but God, brought together, that is like signaling something is about to go down. Something is about to change. It might be a small thing, it might be a big thing, but fortunes are about to be flipped on their head when God walks by and sees what's going on. And seeing God's compassion for those that no one has compassion on. I'll tell you this, if I'm being perfectly honest, it doesn't remind me so much of who I was when I first met God. It reminds me of me right now. That God would still choose to step in and see and redeem and save. And all of just the knucklehead, sinful things that people do, that he would still step in and want us for his own, is just incredible. And it says here, when I passed by and I saw you. Another translation says, but when I passed by and when I saw you. Here, speaking in the first person, it says that God saw. And I don't have time to go into all the instances in the Bible of what happens when God sees. Do you know the first time that phrase appears in the Bible is in Genesis 16, used by a single mother. Hagar is currently pregnant. She's been cast out. She's in the wilderness. And God speaks to her and tells her that she will, in fact, have a son named Ishmael. And because of that, she doesn't call him Yahweh. She changes his name. And she calls him the God who sees, or in Hebrew, El Roy. Which is pretty fantastic that her understanding of who God is is now wrapped around the fact that God is the one who saw her, unwanted, unloved, in a literal field to die, pregnant with child. The God who sees me. You may, if you don't yet, you will, at some point know what it feels like to be an invisible person. Just taken for granted, not respected, not cared for. No one asks you what you think about things. You seem to be passed over. And while everyone else is getting the good, you are just left there feeling like no one even knows that you are alive. And then you carry with you when you're going through seasons of feeling invisible, feelings of uh, shame and guilt and anger and vulnerability and frustration. And from my experience, this is a regular occurrence for children in the foster care system. I could tell you stories that no child should have to be able to understand of being quite literally invisible and unwanted. And I, right now, there is an eight-year-old little girl and a seven-year-old little boy that I'm in relationship with through their CASA worker, which is a court-appointed specialist to advocate for them, who had to go back after their last court hearing to find out mom is not getting clean enough, but she won't terminate her rights. And the foster home, which is the only home she's ever known, um, doesn't want her anymore. 
they're unable to care for her. And so in two weeks, right before Thanksgiving, she's going to be back at the DCF office waiting for an emergency shelter for her to be able to go to with her brother. And, and for those of you that have kids, eight years old is about the stage where they stop being cute kids. And I remember as a parent, when my kids started getting older, when your kids are little, everybody notices them, don't they? Oh, look how cute they are. They say the darndest things. And we, oh, they're so adorable. At some point, your kids aren't adorable. They're just smelly, dirty teenagers that act like barbarians. True story, man. True story. And no one comes along, oh, look how cute that 16-year-old boy is. No one's ever said that of my son. But man, when he was seven, six years old, everybody would go by, oh, look how cute he is. Which means that the likelihood of someone's heart being turned towards children at that stage of life gets less and less and less and less. And the need gets greater and greater. But here, God intervenes. And God sees this child in the field, helpless and hopeless, and rescues her. He brings her into his house. He clothes her. He washes her. He bathes her. The point that Ezekiel's making is everything you have came from him. All of the things that made you the proudest, your, your beauty and your stature and your royalty, that didn't even, you were left alone in a field. All of that came from God. But God intervened when he saw your state and did something about it. Now, turn to James 1.27. That's just a picture that's pretty visceral of what it looks like. James is a book about faith without works being dead. And in James, he doesn't just give us a a word picture of what it looks like to be orphaned. He gives us a description and really an invitation. Let me say this. James 1.27 is a favorite verse of everybody in the child welfare world who is a Christian, okay? I even have this on my own website. I want to suggest I don't think we understand what exactly this verse is getting at entirely. This is not a command for Christians that James is giving. There is no language here to suggest that he's commanding something. It's more of a description of reality and how we are then to enter into it. So let me read this, James 1.27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So he starts out by saying pure and undefiled religion. Something that is pure and undefiled is describing something that's pure or clean and it's in its expression. That is, it is one of the clearest pictures of something. It is absolutely pure without defilement of this religion. And that word that we use for pure is the Greek word katharos, which is where we get our English word catharsis, which refers to something that is emotionally or psychologically cleansing. And so he uses that word to say, there is something that is cleansing to us as followers of Jesus in this expression of the gospel. This is pure and undefiled. So you could translate that one of the purest and cleanest expressions of the gospel. 
Now, he uses the word, though, religion, which, as we all know, is a bad word now, right? Not always the case, and certainly not what James is describing. I can't think of the last time I heard the word religion used in a positive context. All James is saying by the word religion is an external expression of something that's inwardly true. Basically, who God is and what he does, which is fitting for a book that is expressly about the relationship between faith in God and works towards neighbor and how we bring the two of those together, which is where we started at the beginning of our time. So he's suggesting that there is a particular expression of who God is and what he does that is pure and cleansing in anything that we could participate in. This is one of the most vivid pictures of who God is and what he's done that we could show that is not only for the benefit of others, but it changes us. It develops our compassion. It develops our capacity. So having four kids in Los Angeles, people think we're either Mormons or Catholics because no one has four kids, right? And so... People are like, well, you know, what's it, what's it like having four kids? Well, imagine you have three kids and you're drowning and someone throws you a baby. That's pretty much what it's like. <clears throat> what are you going to do, though? And you adapt is what happens. And interestingly enough, we had to have some older, mature Christians in our life counsel my wife and I before we had our fourth kid because I was adamant we are not going to have another child. My wife would have 15 kids if, if we could. But I said, I don't have enough time and capacity to give towards another child. I want to be able to care and spend individual time with all my kids. I just simply don't have it in me. And so we were just not seeing eye to eye. We weren't angry necessarily. We just were disagreeing vehemently. And so we said, listen, we're not understanding each other. Let's call in. A, so we called in a couple that we know very well, and they sat down. I, I thought they were going to be on my side. <laughs> and the husband said, well, man, it, it sounds to me like there's a lot of fear in all of the reasons you gave for not having another child. And I was like, yes, I am genuinely concerned. He said, okay, well, making decisions out of fear normally isn't the best possible way to go about that. Why don't you give it a month and without taking measures to ensure that it happens or doesn't happen, just through the normal course of being married, see what happens. I was like, okay, that sounds like faith. And so we did that. And one week later, we were pregnant with our fourth. <laughs> and of course, now having four, I can't possibly imagine not having Gracie. Like, we had three boys. And so it was blood and fighting and weaponry and knives and all sorts of things in our house. She tempered all of us in an incredible way that our family wouldn't be the same. So I understand the, the, uh, the reasons for why we would not get involved. But stepping into this is so cleansing for us, it actually increases our capacity. It increases our ability to step into broken places and say, I might not have chosen this, but when God puts it right in front of you, when you meet a mother that is trying her best, but it's not good enough, 
because of systemic reasons from her mother and her mother's mother and her mother's mother, because most of the time the dads aren't around. And she says, I, I am unable to care for my child and I don't know what to do. That puts you in a very different situation than, well, yeah, I thought about foster care. Well, we've all thought about doing something like that. It's a very different situation when you're face-to-face -face with it and you have to decide, can we do this? Is this something that we actually have the capacity for? So one of the purest and most cleansing demonstrations of the gospel is what James says, is this. Before God the Father, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Now, that's a great word, visit because that is the exact same word that is used of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, that God has visited his people and brought salvation. We use the word visit as if I'm going to stop by for a visit, but obviously God becoming flesh is a little bit more than just having dinner. And so what this word is talking about is to move towards with an intentionality to care for and to take an intense interest in the well-being of to visit widows and orphans in their distress. This is, in the original language, in a tense that refers to something that's being habitually done, in the same way that Jesus habitually dwelt among his people, not just a one-time thing there. So it implies a closeness and a nearness. I love it. I love that. Seriously. I do. I love it. I love it. Because there's someone who goes to check on them when they scream like that. And it's probably nothing. Someone took their toy, and now they're just having a meltdown. But there's someone who cares enough to check. It's great. People used to do that all the time when I was pastoring. We'd have kids and babies crying. And of course, it's always the moms that feel the most guilty about the kids. It's like, let your kids cry. For those of us that have kids that aren't babies anymore, it's great. We love it. Like, yes, let them cry. That's wonderful. <laughs> I don't have to stay up at 3 a.m. listening to them cry anymore. <laughs> Love it. In the same way that Jesus came near and wrapped himself in our brokenness and was broken by our brokenness so that we no longer have to be, James now tells us we have a chance to participate in that same thing. This is really difficult for our church of today. One of the things, this, this is not thus saith the Lord, this is just our personal thought. Our churches do not do lamenting very well. We do celebrating very well. We do telling good stories very well. We do celebrating recovery very well. But if any of you have actually been in recovery, you know that the celebrating looks like this and the hell looks like this. Some real talk. And so we celebrate well because we love it when it's already over and we're free. But we don't do well sitting in the ashes in sackcloth and brokenness. And yet you read the Psalms and over a third of them are dirges. They, they are a, a lament. You read the prophet Jeremiah in his book Lamentations sitting in the rubble of Jerusalem just absolutely a wreck. We're uncomfortable with that. We, we don't know how to move towards brokenness without ourselves being broken. And so we kind of erect a wall. 
So in 2015, my kid brother died of a heart attack. And well, he was 30 years old. My, my well-meaning church said all kinds of things to me that made me angry. He's in a better place. God has his purposes. One day it's all going to be better. I can tell you it hasn't gotten better. It's a new normal, and I don't feel the same way about it. I don't think, but you never, it never goes away. You don't lose someone close to you and then get back to the way you were before. And it's not their fault. They didn't know. So he's in a better place. I'm sure of that. I, don't, I just don't care. I want my brother back. I want him here with me so I can show him what's going on in my life. I want to know what's going on in his. I want him to have life. I don't care that he's in a better place. And it was really just a handful of people that would be like, hey, I, can I just sit with you? And they just came along and sat not saying anything, which of course wired for productivity and efficiency we feel like is the least effective thing. But just the presence in that brokenness that I'm not afraid of you being a train wreck communicates something that's so deep. Like, I don't have to be put together and fixed for you to still come near me. And this is what James is saying by visiting or caring for. It's moving towards orphans and widows. And now here's the thing with that. The fatherless and the husbandless represented two of the most marginalized classes of people in the first century that he lived in. I don't think this only refers to orphans and widows. I think this is referring to the most broken and marginalized and forgotten and pushed aside in society. He's using that as representative of all of the broken people and places that no one else wants to walk towards. And so he's using that. And when we do that, the gospel is put on display with an incredible clarity because who else does that? Who else does that? I heard that there's some of you who have adopted in this church, right? I'm, I know that you've heard, oh, that is so great for you. I could never do that. Okay, maybe. Probably not. I think you're probably stronger than you think. But that's neither here nor there. What James is saying, one of the purest and most cleansing demonstrations of the gospel is to move towards hard places and broken people, not away from them. That's the point. And it's not a command. He's not saying you must do this. He's simply saying, if you are aligning yourself with the heart and mind of God, this is going to be one of the purest expressions that you can show others who he is and what he's doing in our world today. This is a vivid depiction of the God that adopted us. And we are now able to participate in that. And then this last verse that we typically keep out because no one knows what to do with it, it says, and to keep oneself unstained from the world, as if it's a secondary verse that they just kind of tacked onto there. It's... Some translations don't use the word end. They use the word but. But keep yourself 
unspoiled from the world, which makes sense because if you are so consumed in this cleansing nature of this picture of the gospel, you have no time to become stained or tainted by the values and visions of the world and what they say you should be pursuing or should be living for. That's just what it looks like to walk by faith. And when you're walking by faith, people are just not going to understand why you're doing because you've chosen to live from a very different value system. In 2004, my family moved to Mexico to a little colonia called the Valle Las Palmas. My oldest son was, was an infant. And I remember people telling me I was sinning against God by leaving a thriving church I was pastoring to go to a village in Mexico to do some community development work. I actually had one pastor say, you are too good a teacher to be hidden in a village. Whew. Now, first of all, I'm, I'm sure I've thought that, maybe. But to actually say that to someone, like, dag. Really? You just said that? To, like, how do you respond to someone like that? Maybe I don't want to be a, that good a teacher. It's actually kind of why I turned over the church. That's kind of what I was doing. Oh, he's a good teacher. Great. There's plenty of good teachers. Get your podcast and listen to Matt Chandler. He's better than me anyway. I want to be about it. I want to get out there and I want to be walking in the broken places. That's what's needed. There's plenty of good teachers. This is a natural um, expression of this pure gospel that we would keep ourselves undefiled from the world's values and what they think we should be pursuing and what we should be doing and what's reasonable and normal. The gospel just demands us that we walk by faith, not by sight, and we follow the Spirit of God who very often leads us towards broken places and broken people where there's just a lot of broken glass and very little celebrating. And it's a hard thing to sign up for and in my field to be able to walk away from. Like I, there's, I can't meet all of these needs that I encounter. And at best, I'm like ringing the alarm and saying to churches like, hey, I know, I know some things over here. I'd like, you to in, I'd like to introduce you, but I can't possibly do all of that with my family and our limitations. I can only do a fraction of it. And so being able to walk away from that and being okay is very, very difficult. When we are so immersed with who God is and what he's doing, we just don't have time for all of the worldly nonsense of what we ought to be doing or pursuing. We're more concerned with listening to what God is calling us to do, to where he's already told us we should be invested in and what we should be doing as a result of that and taking baby steps towards that. So the application of today is not that you should be a foster parent or uh, adopt. I think that's a beautiful thing. But one of the things that I know in Los Angeles is if that's the only way for people to step in, it's just not going to happen. Most of my church were all in the industry who moved out to LA to make it in the industry. And so it was like six deep in a studio apartment and they're all 25 years old. Like they don't have homes that they're gonna be able to open up and take these kids in. We saw incredible work with them being mentors of kids who are aging out of the foster care system because once they're emancipated, it's like being thrown, what's the saying? Kettle to the fire, something like that. It, it, yeah, it's one of those things that my wife says, you sound like you're 75 when you say that. 
but it's one of those kind of sayings, right? Like out of the frying pan and into the fire, out of the frying pan. And they're emancipated and now they're no longer in the system, but now they have no job skills, no life skills, no interview skills, no means of employment, and it just gets worse. So we were able to help mobilize them to serve as mentors. I don't know if you're aware, but foster kids aging out have FAFSA loans available to them to go to college. If you've ever been on Medi-Cal or Tried or WIC or something like that and tried to fill out some of those forms, that's difficult for English speakers and writers who know how to do that, much less someone who doesn't speak that language and doesn't have the ability to do that. Just simply coming alongside someone else so they're able to do that, there's a lot of ways to get involved. And James says this is a pure and clean expression of how God has first loved us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And I thank you for where we are this morning. Our lives, as we find them today, are the perfect circumstances for us to grow spiritually. We're so tempted to believe that if circumstances were different, if job was different, if housing was different, if kids were different, that we would be in a better situation. And yet, this life is the only one that you've given us to live. And so while we hope and pray for that goodness to be showered on us, we also thank you for what you have given and the resources that we do have. I pray that you would allow us to worship you with such purity and clarity that we begin to have the mind of Christ, according to Philippians, that we have the heart of Christ, and that we're living in a way that expresses that. Allow us to inhale grace and exhale gratitude for all of your goodness in our lives. In Jesus' name.